Dr. Hinman has spent nearly 20 years in full-time practice as a psychotherapist and educator. In addition, he has been actively pursuing his own recovery as an adult child for the past 14 years. Cognitive perceptual reconstruction, a therapeutic approach to the treatment of adult children of dysfunction, has been an outgrowth of these years of experience. Dr. Hinman has published several articles on adult children and a chapter with his wife, Sonia, Cognitive Perceptual Reconstruction in the Treatment of Alcoholism. With the help of a steering committee of recovering individuals, he has founded CARE self-help groups. He is currently in full-time practice as a psychologist with Psychological Associates in Modesto. Tonight's presentation, Roadblocks to Recovery, is Lecture 4 of the Journey Series. It is co-sponsored by Psychological Associates and Modesto Psychiatric Center. Dr. Hinman will discuss Part 1, Building Your New Program Adult, Part 2, Five Hours in Relapse, and Part 3, Five Hours in Recovery. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Hinman. Again, this is really exciting for me. I'd like to start with a story that I shared um, about two years ago. And it has to do with self-image. Each of us has a sense of who we are, and that includes what we do. Those who have struggled with chemical dependency know what it means to party, right? Those of you that haven't struggled with chemical dependency know what it means to party also, right? I want to give you an example of an unusual way of looking at partying. Jesse, who is now eight but was five at the time, my son, was at his grandmother's up in the mountains. It's beautiful scenery. You look out over the pine trees, and it's just, it's God's country. It's just, it's a wonderful, incredible place. Jesse had his eyes sort of lighting up, and he looks at my mom and says, hey, Grandma, let's party! And he said it just like this, and this is a five-year-old. And my mom, knowing he's my son, didn't know what exactly was going to happen next, and says, okay, what, uh, what should we do? And he says, let's make some popcorn and go outside and watch the bug zapper. <laughs> you know, let's party. Let's party. The tragedy, the tragedy is that we're too stupid as kids to know what it means to party. Kids don't realize we have to get stinko blind drunk or high to party. As a five-year-old, he still thinks partying is watching bug zappers. Hey, I got that one, you know? And eating popcorn and having a good time looking out at the trees. When you cross the line into chemical dependency, 
You spend the rest of your life learning how to enjoy partying by watching bug zappers. And it becomes a full circle. It's just one other application in the process of self-image. How do we define things such as partying? How do we define things such as having a good time? Things such as freedom? In the process of growing up, of learning who we are through that mirror of reflection in the environment we grow up in, we make all of these different decisions, these distinctions. And until we begin to change that self-image, we will continue to feel deprived. Whether it has to do with eating, whether it has to do with chemicals, whether it has to do with sexual addiction. For someone with a sexual addiction, they feel oftentimes that monogamy is a constraint on their freedom. Gambling, you name the addiction. The fact is that as we begin to redefine these kinds of issues, like what does it mean to party? It's the beginning of the healing process. I don't believe in deprivation. And I want to share something. I got feedback from a friend, a very dear friend, who is struggling with the issue of, of, of weight and, and, and eating as, as an addiction. And our society has been very cruel with this particular addiction. There's often a lot of, of, of humor poked at people with this particular problem. And when I was sharing about how dieting is a beautiful blueprint of how not to enter recovery, and we talked about how as we feel more and more deprived in dieting, that food becomes more of an obsessional draw and everyone laughed. I think the laughter is because we all know the feeling when we deprive ourselves. Recovery cannot be based on deprivation. It can only be based on building, on gaining, not on taking away. I just want to be real clear that struggles with eating disorders, bulimia, anorexia, or just that of medicating oneself with food is no more funny, is no less serious and devastating to the soul than any of the other addictions. And I really appreciated that feedback. I really did. Because it isn't. It isn't funny. What happens in the process of that forming of a self-image and then wanting to change is that we're busy defending where we should be. We want to be here, and yet we're over here. And we end up defending the fact that we're not over here, and it prevents change. The first step in change is accepting that you are where you are at this moment. That's the beginning of change. And until you take that step of saying, yep, I don't like it. I wish I was there already. I wish I didn't have to sweat so hard to get from here to there. But I am where I am, and that's where I'm starting. When you get that, you've entered the path into recovery.
begin briefly. We talked last time about the reaction compass. One of the difficulties with the reaction compass is that these passive frustration and aggressive quadrants, the decisions that we make to get in those quadrants, once you make those decisions, everything else that follows, follows automatically. If I make the decision that I'm okay, but you're not, it is only natural to tend to be aggressive and hurtful and to be angry and self-righteous. If, on the other hand, I make the decision that I'm not an okay person where I am, but neither are you, because you got a mustache, not a beard. And people with mustaches without beards aren't okay. I know that. You all know that, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> this guy with a beard agreeing with me. <laughs> all right. Once you make those two decisions about self and the other person, everything else is automatic. I will be defending myself. I will be attacking you. I will be trying to convince you that you've got to grow a beard so that I'll be okay. And when I'm busy chasing my tail in defending myself and getting nowhere, the despair sets in. What often happens in the process of recovery is we try to get the feelings of serenity from down in the quadrant of passivity, from the quadrant of aggressiveness, or the quadrant of frustration. We don't want to change our decisions. We want a different feeling outcome. It ain't going to happen, folks. And you can pay me all the money in the world to make that happen. And it gonna, it's not going to happen until you change your mind, until you make a different set of decisions. Recovery is the process of changing your mind, of making different decisions. That's what it is all about. We talked last time about the commentator, that voice inside that tells us who we are, tells us how we're doing, tells us whether we're falling short. Often with many people that are adult children, a commentator doesn't tend to say real positive things. It says things like, don't, don't leave that note out. You better get that point. You're going to get tested. Because for adult children, life is a whole series of tests, isn't it? And any test that you fail, you fail personhood. You see, the stakes are, are ultimate for adult children. If I flub this talk before entering recovery, it wouldn't be flubbing the talk. It would be failing humanity. No pressure. No pressure. None at all, right? Putting a gun at your head and saying, relax. It's, it's lighting a match at the end of your toes and saying, go to sleep. We've got to remove the pressure. We've got to remove the fault in order for change to become a more natural process. I invited you to become aware of how you're talking to yourself, not just the words, but the tone, the attitude, the assumptions that that commentator is making on a day-to-day -day basis. I again invite you to do the same. Finally, we talked about freedom, and we talked about how 
a map doesn't have to restrict freedom. It can allow us to have a choice. We don't have to follow the map. And whether it be the 12 steps, or whether it be some other, like cognitive perceptual reconstruction, or some other approach that helps guide a person from where they are toward where they want to be becoming, you have a choice with a map. You don't have a choice without a map. Over the weekend, I had another experience about recovery, and I want to share it. I was doing something this weekend that I had sworn in my childhood I would never do once I was an adult. I resisted it with every fiber of my being. My wife and I fought about this for the first five years of our marriage because she had a father who did this and I wasn't going to do this. And she felt that all men did this. And I assured her, this man doesn't do this. <laughs> yeah, you guessed it, yard work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guessed it. To me, yeah, I know, I'm bizarre. <laughs> I resemble that. Yard work is one of those symbols for me of my recovering. When I first began to realize that I could approach a task that I had feared like the death march to Bataan, because that's what it was like as a kid. No, no, not yard work! No, no, please! I'll wash toilets! Anything, no yard work, please! It was an awful experience. There was nothing fun about yard work. This weekend, I was digging up plants and my wife was there and my kids are running around and we're having a good time to listen to some music. That's recovery, is being able to have the choice of seeing something differently than you have up till now. That's freedom. I don't have to do yard work. I'm in a position in my life, I can afford to have it done. That's nice, you know? But I can now have the freedom to do the yard work and the freedom to enjoy it. And until you can give yourself the freedom to enjoy your recovery, it will be like dieting. And your recovery will be being good and when you're good to a certain point you gotta be bad and you will sabotage your recovery from depression anxiety or any of the other addictions you need to let yourself be clear that to make the path easier you need to be able to have the freedom to enjoy the journey That process, that journey, is not smooth. It's not easy. But it can be very, very rewarding and fun. Take a moment and close your eyes, or like I said before, keep them open, or do one of each. <laughs> and as you're doing that, I want you to imagine enjoying your recovery. Whatever it is depression, anxiety, just low self-esteem, whatever it is that you're, you're wanting choices about in the present, imagine that you could do it and have fun doing it. 
just entertained that wild notion that Jim Henman could enjoy yard work. If I can enjoy yard work, you can enjoy your journey into recovery. Because I could have gotten a divorce before I could have enjoyed yard work early in my marriage. It was that important to me. I would not do it and we'd fight and there was no way in the world I was going to do it. Now I enjoy doing it. Give yourself permission to consider the idea that you can enjoy the process of recovery. It can actually be a fun activity. Or you can approach it the way I did aerobic dance. Any of you do aerobic dance? I saw Janice. <laughs> She's one of the teachers at the time. Aerobic dance, again, is a good illustration of how not to approach recovery. Now, I was the original couch potato. I mean, I had roots sprouting from my bottom into the cushions. My exercise was walking from the couch to the bathroom, to the refrigerator, to the couch, to the bathroom, to bed, after an exhausting ordeal of resting. <laughs> so I'm going to go do some aerobic exercise, because my wife has this weird idea of wanting me to live. Wanting me to survive a stressful job. And, and as a psychologist, it is a very stressful job. And I sit for a living. She said, Jim, you got to do something to get some exercise. Okay. So I belonged to the courtroom at that time, and I went to aerobics as a couch potato. And I come out. There are a bunch of women out there. Yeah, no big deal. So I'm out there. You know. Mr. Macho Man here. And I'm not going to let them do one thing that I don't do. Now, these women have been doing it for years. You know, three, five times a week, right? My first time. And I'm out there and I'm doing my thing, you know. And about ten minutes later, I'm looking around for the oxygen tent. You know. My, my asthma is killing me. But I'm a man, you know, and men don't feel pain. Men don't give up. And so I'm going on, I'm going on, and about halfway through, this person looks at me. Are you all right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. Well, I think I might sit down for a minute. I canned aerobics. Aerobics wasn't for me. Could it be my approach had something to do with that conclusion? <laughs> How do you approach your recovery? Do you continue to show that it's not for you? Or do you allow yourself to build a new program adult? At first, that new program adult may be this big, 2%. That new program adult is that part of you that begins to talk to you in a loving, respectful way. That begins to give you accurate feedback of who you are and how you are as you go through life. The key words in the new program adult is accuracy, respect, and valuing of you as a human being and the absolute belief in your capacity to go on the journey. That's the new program adult. 
I have yet to find someone that starts out the process of recovery with a new program adult that's 100%. It just doesn't happen. It's really not realistic to expect that. If you can get 3%, 5%, celebrate. That is real good. If you celebrate that 5%, it becomes 8%. You celebrate that 8%, it becomes 15%. You celebrate 15, it gets 30, 60. It never, ever, ever gets 100%. Never does it get to be 100%. Accuracy is at the heart of new program. Learning to have a part of you that is committed to accuracy is a big part of the process of recovery. In recovery skills training, which is the course that's being implemented right now at Modesto Psychiatric Center, we put a lot of work into accuracy. The main bulk of the course is the building of the new program adult in that kind of nurturing, accepting attitude toward self. Some of the violations that are inaccurate in most people's thinking are things such as selective movie. Let me tell you about selective movie. There are probably, what, six or seven people here tonight? Maybe ten people here tonight. If one of you, in old program, were to sit there and go, Oh, God, this guy is a drag. This is the worst lecture I have ever heard. There was not one redeeming quality to the whole talk. Before recovery, what 600 or so people are saying no that was interesting thanks a lot I got a lot from it would be nothing I'd hone in my camera on the one person that said it was boring that's a selective movie isn't it 600 people are ignored one person fills the screen selective movie beginning to realize what's not in your picture when couples are talking and having conflict, I invariably tell them to tell me their movie. Usually it's Rambo for one and Gone with the Wind for the other. They're talking about two different movies. Now try to put those together. See, now, Clark Gable had an AK-47 in the jungle? Or was it Sylvester Stallone? <laughs> for the uh, Confederacy. You see? Unless you're talking about the same movie, how can you compare the script? How can you compare the acting, the scenery, if you're not even talking about the same movie? And yet we assume there's only one movie, the right movie, my movie. <laughs> and you're wrong and I'm right. It makes for good, intimate conversation makes problem solving very easy. What it does is get you back down to the frustration quadrant very quickly. Other examples of the inaccuracy in people's thinking, one of the really powerful ones that I really have a lot of strong feelings about is who defines reality? What I often see, particularly with adult children, is they will let the other person define reality and then struggle against the definition. Argue against it, struggle against it. 
But once you let the other person define the parameters, define the reality, you're dead meat. You've lost. So if someone says to me, Jim, you're ABC, whatever it is. Okay, that's your opinion. Let me think about it. If I agree with it, fine. If I disagree with it, we simply have a difference of opinion. That wasn't possible for me before entering recovery because there wasn't a self to disagree with the other person. I was so busy letting them have the oxygen tank. I was so busy trying to please and not be rejected that I couldn't really argue effectively. Be careful who defines reality for you. I think it's important not to give that power to another person. That doesn't mean you can't be open to feedback. Yes, you need to be open to feedback in order to make changes. But you need to take it in and chew it around before you swallow. I do not believe that blind faith is very useful on the journey into recovery. I believe 2020 faith is very useful. Accurate faith. Belief in accuracy, belief in certain key principles is very useful in recovery. Mind reading. This is a great way to drive your partner crazy. You know what you did. Yeah, you. You know what you did. If you loved me, you wouldn't have said that. He's sitting there going, what in the world is this guy talking about? You know? But I assume that I know what Lynn's thinking. How often do you assume that? How often do you assume that you know what the other person's thinking? Or that you assume that if they loved you, they would know what you're thinking? Which is equally destructive and malignant. Crystal ball gazing. Looking into the ball and going into the past or the future and forgetting that you're in the present. Thinking about something in the future and suddenly you're there. It's a great way to take your power away. It's a great way to take your power away as far as I'm concerned. Is that your goal? To take your power away. Recovery skills training essentially is the process of helping to develop and strengthen the new program adult. 10%, 30%, you keep celebrating and the figures continue to increase. If you demand that you do it perfectly, if you demand that the new program adult has all the answers, if you insist that the new program adult is always right on, you will not make it. Twelve years this August of actively working my recovery as a codependent adult child. It's now unnatural for me to be an old program. And I'm still an old program sometimes. The difference between 13 years ago and today is now when I'm an old program, it's like, what's, something's wrong here. I may not know right now what it is, but something's not right. 13 years ago, it was like a comfortable shoe. Anxiety, depression, that hollow feeling inside, that felt normal. 
Now it feels strange. That's recovery. Recovery doesn't mean that the new program adult eliminates bad feelings. The new program adult with increasing strength with practice. Wait a minute, practice? You mean like rolling up your sleeves and sweating? Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean sweating in a way that sometimes you can't even believe you had the capacity to sweat before. Fear? Yeah. When you start breaking those rules, that's fear producing. You need to have a new program adult that can nurture that child that's wounded or children that are wounded inside of us. You need an adult to take you from that ACA meeting safely to your car. <laughs> Some of you know exactly what I mean. When you're feeling so raw, and get you safely home and safely dealing with your boss the next day. The new program adult is extremely important and it will never be done perfectly. Celebrate the imperfection and the new program adult will strengthen. I find it extremely helpful in that process to allow your higher power, my big brother, to nurture the new program adult as the new program adult nurtures the kids inside. Because the new program adult also needs nurturing, also needs support. And that's part of where the higher power comes in, is supporting that new program adult. And it will never be 100%. Never. Recovery and the new program adult will never be 100%. Let's look at some of the ways to make it difficult. Do you want to know how to make recovery difficult? You came here tonight, right? To find out how to make it hard? How to make it as painful as possible? Right, that was the goal, right? You said, I want to get there early and get a good seat so I can learn how to make it really hard. Isn't that what you're saying to yourself on the way in tonight? I'm going to teach you how. So you can have a choice. I call this the five R's in relapse. And by relapse, I do not mean simply chemical dependency. It's going back into old program, whatever that may be. It may be depression. It may be anxiety. It may be any of the different addictions. Relapsing back into old program. The first R in relapse is resistance versus openness. Let me show you. See, I used to do aerobics, and now I simply walk back and forth between uh, the podium and the uh, transparency machine. I get all the exercise I need. Resistance versus openness. Okay, now I've just gotten a new set of barbells. Can you all see this? Beautiful set of barbells. 50 pounds on each side. Because I'm macho man. Let me get this cord out of the way. I don't want to hurt myself. The barbell's got 100 pounds on it all together. I reach down. And I pick it up. And I... It doesn't move. I'm embarrassed. What are the women going to think? 
I'm going to have my shirt off or they know why I can't lift the darn thing. So I come back and I try again. I should be able to do 100 pounds. What's wrong with me? Suddenly my higher power says, Jim, if you unbolt it from the floor, it'll be a lot easier. The resistance is often because we don't notice that the barbells are bolted to the floor. And we're so busy trying and feeling upset about failing that we forget to look at the details, such as whether or not it's bolted to the floor. The fact is, it's a lot easier not to have to lift the floor too. No one that I know could lift the whole thing. They have to unbolt it. Resistance and dealing with resistance is like unbolting the barbells from the floor. If you don't respect your resistance, your resistance is going to fight back in direct proportion to how hard you push. The harder you push, the more you will resist. The more you resist, the harder you push. The harder you push, the, and it becomes a vicious circle. Vicious circle. Let's make the vicious circle even more difficult by being really jerks toward ourselves, using a very hurtful, demanding tone of voice. Sit up straight. Stop wiggling your feet. Get your hands away from your hands. Get your hands away from your hands. That's an order. <laughs> you notice that bizarre orders are even harder to comply with. <laughs> and some of the orders we come up with in the process of trying to enter recovery are as bizarre as get your hands away from your hands. When we approach ourselves in that kind of demanding way, it is natural, it is normal to rebel. He can't make me is a normal response when someone is demanding something of you. And that's true even if that someone is you. If the commentator is not approaching you in a loving, nurturing, respectful way, resistance is a very natural response. Another way to keep the barbells bolted to the floor is the all-or-nothing phenomenon. Either I do it perfectly, or why bother? I mentioned this one in previous talks. You ain't gonna do it perfect. If you can accept that, if you can embrace that reality, it's like unbolting the barbells. It makes it possible doesn't make it easy. The barbells still don't lift themselves. You notice that? I used to exercise by sitting there, waiting for the barbells to rise. You know, I just kind of sit there and watch the exercise bike. And that's supposed to be, you know the exercise bikes are good for you, don't you? You know that. You know, like the, the life cycle, or the Schwinn. How many of you have exercise bikes? How many of you have found good weight loss and good cardiovascular help in the process of watching your bike? 
I watch mine all the time. It hasn't helped me at all. You notice you got to get your buns on the bike. And you got to put your feet on the pedals. And you got to move your feet on the pedals again and again and again and again and again. And you get tired and you keep going. And you start puffing and you keep going. That's recovery. You can look at that bike all day long. You can buy a $10,000 bike and look at it and get no results. And it's the same with recovery. I've seen people who wanted recovery without sweat and they made the mistake of seeing me. <laughs> Not for long. <laughs> Some people think that if you go and see a therapist, that's all it takes. Or if you go to the 12-step meeting, that's all it takes. You can look at the bike and lose weight. You can look at the bike and the cardiovascular system begins to heal. It doesn't work. You got to put your feet into it. You got to sweat. How do you approach the bike? I'll tell you again how I did it that didn't work. And I'll tell you how my wife has done it that does work. She loves the bike. You know, she gets up there and she puts on her headphones and she's just pedaling away. I, I've gotten better at it. I've been trying to use her strategy. It's, it's, her strategy works really well. I used to sit there in bed thinking, oh, God, I hit the alarm for the snooze. Thinking, well, I should get up. It's a true statement. I should get up. You know, this, this is an accurate statement. I should get up because I do need to have exercise. I should exercise in order to live long enough to see my kids grow up and to see my grandkids and see my grandkids grow up. I need to exercise. I should exercise. It's a true statement. But the moment I tell myself that I should do it, there's this cobalt steel rod. You probably don't know that, but some of you may have a similar phenomenon, maybe different metal. Cobalt is a real strong metal that says, no, no. And so I try to beat myself onto the bike with a whip, and I get on it. And Sonia says, why don't you use my Walkman? And listen, ah, oh, I don't need that. It would be making it too easy. And I get on there, and I'm kind of going like this, and we haven't fun yet, you know. And the next time it's my turn, because I only get it certain days because she has it the other days, she likes it, you know. And I think, well, I should get up. It doesn't work. It doesn't work to approach recovery in that way. So now I listen to music, you know, 97.5, you know, oldies, which to me aren't oldies. <laughs> It's all a matter of perspective, right? And it's some good rock and roll music, and I'm pedaling along, having a good time, looking out the window. And it's actually addictive. It's actually fun. The only person I don't want to know that is Sonia. <laughs> I'm afraid she's going to say, I told you so. <laughs> you got to pedal into recovery. One of the difficulties in resistance is the fact that 
if you use judgmentalness in your observation, if when you see something, you judge yourself harshly, it pays to continue the, the, the denial. The denial makes sense if you're being a harsh, critical judge of what you see. Denial works, and it works as follows. You're driving along in a Thule fog. Any of you ever drive in the Thule fog? And you can maybe see one dash in front of you. Isn't it a warm, relaxing kind of thing to do? <laughs> okay, you're in your car, you're driving along, feeling good, feeling okay. And suddenly there's a breeze and the fog clears and you see this big semi coming right down at you. Would you prefer the comfort of denial or the discomfort of accurately seeing that you better make a choice real quick? Which do you prefer? The denial is much more comfortable till the truck hits. Until the moment of impact, denial is much more comfortable. Take it from me. When you see the truck coming, you're not going to be comfortable. is a very healthy response to a truck coming right at you. That's a functional response. If it's followed by turning to one way or the other. If you stay with the panic, you're still dead. But you start with the panic, accept the panic, and turn to the left or the right, and the discomfort leads to continuing to live. Discomfort won't kill you particularly if you use it as a signal that action is necessary. But it's not going to be as comfortable as denial until the truck hits. At that point, you're dead and you don't have to worry about it. Finally, one other element of resistance that I want you to look at is the assumption that it should be easy. It should be natural. Change should be a natural... If I have to work at it, there's something wrong. I talked last week about the eight-lane freeway of old program, the habit strength of old program, and Yucca Road, that little pothole, chuckhole road, dirt, that you got to go about two miles an hour on because otherwise you're going to destroy your axles. Recovery is not a natural process if you expect it to be smooth. On the other hand, if you have a new program adult with his or her arm around you saying, great, now here, turn to the right, turn to the right, I know it's bumpy, go real slow, there's a chuck hole over here, there's a big rock on the road over there, why don't you take a break, relax for a minute, we'll go on. Recovery becomes natural but only with that kind of nurturing guidance does it become natural. When you try to demand it, and particularly if you try to demand perfection, recovery is unnatural. And when you're doing something new, it will feel uncomfortable and unfamiliar. That is natural. It is natural for something new to feel unnatural. It is natural for something unfamiliar to feel gangly and awkward. 
How many of you have played golf? How many of you got a good score when you first started? I've played golf. Yeah. I've played golf about three times. I hit the ball. This is like a par three out of what River Heights or River Oaks or right off of Mitchell. And I hit the ball and it goes over another alley or what do you? <laughs> I'm a real golfer. Fairway, you know, it goes to the different fairway and I go look for the stupid ball and it's nowhere to be found. So I get another ball and I, and I hit it again and it goes to the other fairway. Isn't that how most people start playing golf? Those that accept that and take lessons are called golfers. Those that don't accept that and don't take lessons, I don't mean necessarily professional lessons, often you can get lessons from somebody else who's a good golfer. In the same way, you don't necessarily have to have professional help to enter the path into recovery. Find somebody in your life that you say, I like how this person's life is working for them. I like their attitude. I like their relationship with themselves. I like their relationship with the people around them. And you go to them and say, how do you do that? And they'll say, what? And you say, that. And they'll say, what? You know, how come you're so happy? I don't know. Chances are, unless they have been wounded and have manually shifted into recovering, they won't know how they do it. There are people out there, believe it or not, who are happy and have been happy their whole life. And that's great. They're not usually called adult children. They usually don't have the kinds of degree of woundedness that adult children tend to have. People who have worked their program into recovering can tell you how they're doing it. Because they prize what they're doing. They, they, they believe and celebrate what they're doing. It's not an accident. If you look at a computer program, there's always a default mode that says, if you don't do anything, X, Y, and Z will happen. If you approach recovery in a default mode, you will go down the eight-lane freeway into relapse. I guarantee it. You need to respect the resistance without allowing the resistance to control you. Find out what the objections are and continue a nurturing movement forward and it will not be perfect. The second R is resentment versus acceptance. I want you to say the following words with me and if you don't, I'm going to pout. And I can pout as good as any two-year-old. Take my word for it. Look what you did to me. Ready? Look what you did to me. Again, with more passion. Look what you did to me. You got, you got the words now. You got the script down. Okay. This is a two-part movie. Movie one. Life is yucca. You're miserable. You're unhappy. Now let's say it. Get in that movie and let's let's hear it. Look what you did to me. 
pretty easy, isn't it? It's congruent. You're suffering, life is miserable, and you say to yourself, look what you did to me. Second half of the movie now. You're on the beach in Kauai. Let's go first class, right? I love Kauai. You're on the beach in Kauai. You've got half a dozen of your best friends that really love you, that respect you, that care deeply. That concludes disc A. Please insert disc B.